13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is extremely useful to us, mainly because it gives us an opportunity to look at what was going on in a first century church. Now, we recognize that a lot of the things that we see were for the negative, and we're seeing the things that they should not have been doing. But the way Paul then explains this chapter helps us understand how the first century assembly looked, how they worshipped when they came together, and that becomes very instructive for us. Now, as a step back for a moment, as a reminder, what we have going on in Corinth in the assembly, there is that we have these Corinthian Christians who seem to be arguing and competing over miraculous spiritual gifts. In particular, it seems they think that the miraculous spiritual gift of speaking in tongues is the supreme and stands above all others and has caused quite a conflict there in the Corinthian church. And in chapter 12, Paul has argued against that. In chapter 13, he told them that love has to govern all of your activities that we are nothing without love it doesn't matter what we may practice or what we believe we offer in service to in godliness and devotion if it's not built on love it does not matter and so now in chapter 14 he now spends his time talking about what they need to do as the assembly how they should go forward in worship and particularly then why they need to not put such an emphasis on these tongues that they have been emphasizing so greatly. As was read for us, the first five verses, he just simply begins and tells them, so pursue that love. It is not that Paul is saying that these spiritual gifts are nothing. After giving this paragraph about the necessity of love, he says, pursue those spiritual gifts. These are not wrong things. It is wrong in how they were using them and how they were competing over them. But notice he elevates one gift over the others here in verse 1. He'll use this throughout the letter, he'll talk or throughout this paragraph, prophecy. And I don't believe the intention is to say, now you've got it backward. Instead of putting down all of the people who are not tongue speakers, put down all the people who are, don't have the gift of prophecy. I think it gives us a window into it looks like those with the gift of tongues are telling those who have the gift of prophecy, your gift is useless. And he's saying, wait, wait, wait. Let's get all of these on equal level and equal plane. Remember chapter 12, God is the one who distributes these things. It is the Spirit who empowers them, the Spirit who gives them. There's no room for competition, chapter 12, for we are all one body and we are all dependent upon one another. So I don't think the goal then is to come to this section and now go, okay, now prophecy is better, so now argue over that. It's rather something has been depreciated like the gift of prophecy and he's moving it back up and saying tongues is not the thing to seek let me tell you why prophecy is so valuable verse 2 he says the reason why is because in verse 2 the tongue speaker he's not able to help out the assembly unless there is an interpreter No one understands what he's saying. He calls it the mysteries of the Spirit. The Spirit is moving him and he is speaking the very words of God, but nobody in the assembly understands. By contrast, he says in verse 3, the prophecy, the gift of prophecy is useful because everybody understands. 
And I think that makes a lot of sense. If we were to suppose that one of us back in those days say, well, we have the, the miraculous gift of speaking German. And so here you are at the Haverhill Road Church of Christ, and you've got the gift of speaking in German. And up here you go and you just start laying out all that German. Is that helping anybody? Not helping anybody in the room. Everybody's going, well, that's all fantastic and all, but what'd you say? And that's what he's pointing out here is that tongue speaking has only a value if there is an interpreter. But the prophet, the one who has the gift of prophecy, he's able to speak the very words of God and everybody understands. And notice that's what he uses in verse four for the one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesy prophesies builds up the church. And so he draws a contrast. And I want us to consider that, and I put in parenthesis on the screen, that I don't think he's saying that in a positive way when he says, well, the tongue speaker, he builds up one and that's okay. But the prophet, he's able to build up everybody. And the reason why is because he's going to come along later on and say, the one who's speaking like that, he doesn't understand what he's saying either. If I just started reeling off of my gift of Russian, I don't know what those words are either. That's what made it miraculous. If he knew what the words were, he could have interpreted for the congregation. He didn't have the ability to do that. So what he's doing is he's using that word and saying, all he's doing is lifting himself up, which is exactly what we read this Corinthian church is doing. Those with particular gifts are raising themselves up. Oh, we're better. We're more spiritual. Look at these gifts that we have. All you over there, those prophets. Ah, that's not as good a gift as us. And he's saying, wait, wait, wait. Look at the result. Look at the result of tongue speaking. Who in the assembly understands? He says, nobody. You're speaking to God. Only God knows what you're saying. But the prophet, when he speaks... Everybody is able to understand. And so that's what he draws them as his conclusion in verse five is that then clearly prophecy is greater because of the result, which gives us then our clue and important purpose that the Apostle Paul gives as to why we assemble together. Notice that he says it three times consecutively here, and he's going to keep saying this throughout this chapter. That the reason why we are coming together is that there needs to be spiritual building up of one another. Notice how he says it in verse 3. He says that what the prophet does, he speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Then notice verse 4, he says it again, that he builds up the church. And then verse 5, so that the church may be built up. Three consecutive sentences where he says, here's the goal. We get together so that the church is built up, so that there is encouragement, that there is consolation, that we can grow together in these things. And that's why he identifies the prophet as being so useful within the assembly. And so this gives us, I think, a very valuable picture of what we're doing when we come together. I've mentioned to you many times about how our society is just doesn't understand. Why do we have to come together? You know, we'll just patch the Internet in here. We'll all stay at home in our pajamas and we can just video pipe sermons all over the place. It'd be great. You know, we'll all just do that. Why not? Here's why. Because they're supposed to be the coming together for these three things. Upbuilding, encouragement and consolation. 
We're coming together for that. And he says the declaration of the word of God then accomplishes that. Whereas the tongue speaker, he says, is unable to do that. Which draws, I think, a couple of important conclusions as we as we think about this is that the number one is he identifies the tongue speaker and says what you're doing is incorrect and is misusing the gift because you are drawing attention to yourself. Nobody's being built up by what you're doing. Then as a reminder to us that it's not about drawing attention to ourselves in the assembly, the things that we do. And how we worship God and the things that we do to participation of worship together is not about drawing attention to the one who is leading, but drawing attention to God. And what we do in prayer is to be drawing attention to God. And what we do in song is drawing attention to God. And what we do in the lesson is drawing attention to God. That everything that we do should not detract from our attention to God. And too often, I think there's a warning here, too often you see in the religious world, it's all about the person. And so we'll wear funny clothes and we'll elevate certain people and we'll give them crazy titles and we'll do all of these things to try to elevate the person to draw attention to them. And Paul says, that's not right. That's not the purpose. The purpose is for building one another's faith. The purpose is for building spiritual encouragement for one another. And therefore, all of our activities must center on that goal. If that's what he emphasizes over and again, particularly in verses 3, 4, and 5, and he'll say it again like in verse 12 and in verse 26, he'll keep saying the stated purpose again and again is for the building of the church. I want you to be spiritually built up. Then we have to analyze everything that we do as a group together in the assembly and make sure that we are attaining that goal of doing spiritual upbuilding, spiritual faith building, spiritual encouragement. That's why when you come in here, we're not giving you a cup of coffee. That's not for spiritual upbuilding. That's why when you come in here, we're not showing movies on the screen. That's why when you come here, we're not doing fundraisers, entertainment activities, campaigns, charities, social events. None of these things are for spiritual upbuilding. Here's a specific goal of the assembly, he says. Three specific sentences. It is for building up. That's why we come together. And we cannot lose focus of that purpose. It's too easy to have our times together to be about everything else but the Word of God and how it builds us up. That's what it has to be about. And he warns these Corinthians of that as their assembly has degenerated into all kinds of competition and other activities when the work needs to be centered upon upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. He presses this point further in verses 6 through 12 of 1 Corinthians 14. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp Do not give distinct notes. How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives a distinct sound, who will ready them for battle? 
So with yourselves, with your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said for you will be speaking into the air? There are doubtless many different languages of the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So there he brings it around again and he makes a very simple point. Unintelligible sounds don't help anybody. Very difficult argument right there, right? He just makes it very simple and he uses the image of a flute. He says, if you are making a pile of noise on that, how is anybody going to know what you're playing? There has to be a distinct sound and he ties it to tongue speaking and says, tongue speaking without interpretation is nothing more than noise. If I'm just giving you a whole pile of Russian for the next 30 minutes and you're just sitting there going, that's just a bunch of indistinct noises going at me. It doesn't help at all. That's the point that he wants them to understand. Tongue speaking without an interpretation cannot proclaim the gospel, cannot upbuild, cannot encourage, cannot do at all what God wants. That's why when we get tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next Sunday's lesson, we'll see when he gets there and he's going to tell the tongue speaker, if there's not an interpreter, you don't say a word because it's not helping anybody. And that's the point that he's getting at right here. It is useless without the interpretation. And I'd like for you just to observe verse 10 real quick. We, we saw this in chapter 13, verse 1, and I'd like just to highlight it for you one more time. Then notice that what tongue speaking was just simply speaking earthly foreign languages. And he says it there in verse 10. That's all that is. That's all that's going on. There's not angelic babble that nobody on the earth is ever going to understand. That's not what verse 10 says. He says, you are able to speak of the languages of the earth is what he declares here. And says those languages have no value without interpretation. So that's the message he gives from verses 6 through 12. Now watch how he stands upon that in verse 13. Therefore... One who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What a great picture he gives there. So now he says, you have to engage the mind. The mind is to be engaged to have proper worship. And I think that's a, an amazing message. You can just imagine all of the noise that was going on in this assembly. And he's saying, nobody is getting anything out of that. Nobody is learning. Nobody is comprehending. Nobody is engaging the mind. And that's why he says there in verse 15, the use of the spiritual gift must be paired with understanding. It must be paired with the mind. This is in verse 15. 
I will pray with my spirit, the spiritual gift, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. Again, the spiritual gift, but I'm going to sing with my mind also. These two things must be paired together. If not, he says, then what is being done is not helpful. I love how he words that there in verse 16 when he says, so somebody's going to come in and one, they're not going to know what you're saying. And number and then verse 17, number two, the person's not being built up. You see how Paul is emphasizing the goal. The assembly is about building each other up. And the word of God is to be the tool that does that. And so we can't have a situation where that's not going on. In fact, Paul goes so far and he says, I would rather say five words that everybody in the room other understood than say 10,000 words with a tongue that nobody gets. That's big. I think that's really big because it reminds us why chapter 13 sits there. Is because love being the controlling factor is what I'm concerned about is not drawing attention to myself, but making sure that everybody understands the word of God so they can be built up. That's why chapter 13 was there all about love. Why is love the motivation? Because then you will use your gifts properly to those first century Christians. Then then you will use them in a way that is going to be helpful. And I love how he words that there and says, I I have all of these gifts too, but I'm not going to use them if it's not going to build you up. And now this draws the grand conclusion, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. And the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called into account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now he reminds them and says, let's go the route of maturity. And now he gives an explanation and he uses Isaiah to make his point as he quotes Isaiah and says, Did you understand that the gift of tongues was a sign for unbelievers and was not necessarily intended for the assembly? And that makes a lot of sense. If you were in the first century and you had that gift, the whole point would be able to go out into the nations and proclaim in their very language what they could understand. And he says, by contrast, prophecy was a sign for believers, is that it's among your own people who understand your very words. That is an important declaration because I hope you will consider how the world goes completely backward at that. Goes completely backward at that. If somebody has a prophecy, well, hey, it's the end of the world in 2012, right? Yeah, that worked out really great. All still here. Uh, it's going to be the end of the world. Every prophet, they don't talk to their own group. They're, eh, proclaim, proclaim to the whole world. And then the tongue speaker, well, that's for us right here. That's for our assembly right here. That's for us. We understand. Paul says, no. 
the tongue speaking is not intended for the assembly. That's intended to go out and be able to preach. If I was in the first century and had the gift of Russian, go to Russia and preach the gospel. It's a great gift you have. It would do no value here in this room. And that's what he's telling them. Don't you understand why there's a diversity of gifts and they would have different purposes. They would have different functions. So much so you have to love verse 23 when he says, if you're using your gift in the assembly and there's no explanation of what that language is, what are people on the outside going to say? You're crazy. And people do that. That's right. If it's just senseless noise, if you came in here and you got 30 minutes of senseless noise, you can go, that guy's nutty. <laughs> That's not helpful at all. But he makes the contrast and says, however, with the word of God being proclaimed like the gift of prophecy and everybody understands, then people are going to come in. They're going to hear the word of God. The intents of their heart will be disclosed. They will fall down and they will worship God. That's supposed to happen. And unfortunately, too often, we don't see that emphasis. And that's why I put on the screen there, unscriptural usage today shows that these gifts are false. We've spent a lot of time in our study and going through these scriptures showing these things were in the first century. Only the apostles could give those gifts to others. There's no other way. Therefore, they passed out with the apostles when they died. We see 1 Corinthians 13 confirming that. But I want us to recognize Even if those things existed today, which I've affirmed to you they don't, what we see today violates 1 Corinthians 14 like crazy. It violates this text up and down. The point of miraculous spiritual gifts was to be the upbuilding of people. It's not supposed to be the confusion of people, nor is it to be the elevation of certain individuals. It was supposed to be so that the church would be built up together. In fact, you can just kind of scan your eyes down. Look at verse 26 real quick and notice how the end of verse 26 says. Paul is very adamant about this. Everything must be done for building up. He has said this in almost every breath throughout this paragraph. This is the goal, is that we are joined together, built up together in the word of God and nothing more. Now, I want us to bring this around then and consider then just two applications for the impact of our assemblies that we're seeing Paul talk about. Number one, he tells us our minds are supposed to be engaged And that's going to lead to our spiritual upbuild. And that's going to lead to our faith being built. And the reason I I, I settle there for a minute is I don't want us to ever think that there is a conflict between being intellectual and being spiritual. I want you to see here are a bunch of people in the first century and they have spiritual gifts and they're using their gifts And you know what he keeps telling them? Engage your mind. Be built up. Understand what's being said. Understand what is going on. And I think that is very important for our world today and for us to hear. Because so much can be presented in terms of worship to God as 
Well, what did I feel? You know, it's not about what you learn. It's not about what the Word of God says. If I learn something, then that must not be spiritual. It's almost like these two are put in combat with one another. Spirituality does not negate intellectually pursuing and knowing God. And intellectually pursuing and knowing God does not negate spirituality and fervor and zeal. These things are together. The more you learn about God and the more you comprehend what he's done, the more your faith grows and the more your zeal grows and the more you give your life to God. These two should not be separated apart. And I hope you feel the weight of the Apostle Paul saying, with my mind, with my mind, with my mind. Engage the mind. The mind must be engaged in worship. It is critical to the Apostle Paul that he says those things because he wants them to have that. And then the second thing that is important is then that people will come in and they will recognize God and follow God. That the things that we do in our assembly must engage the mind so that our faith is built up. And the things that we do in our assembly must engage people, outsiders, so that when they enter, they learn of God and fall down and worship Him. That's what he just gave the Corinthians. Your assembly must look like this. If these any of these two things are missing, then worship is not going right before God. We must be built up, and those who come in must know God and want to worship Him and learn about Him through what we do. Which then I just want to take a minute to consider. That causes us, I think, to look at everything that we do under that lens. That everything that we do must accomplish these two goals. And so when we come together in our assemblies... And we think about our Bible studies that we come together for. That we then are proclaiming the Word of God. There's a, a, a really interesting movement right now, I guess. The movement's probably too big of a, a word. But there's a lot of places, where, like the church I grew up at, where the Bible study is about watching a movie and telling everyone, let's talk about all the spiritual things we learned about in the movie. Now let's watch Courageous. And then we'll talk about all the spiritual principles that we learn out of watching that movie. Are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? And I'm not talking about, you know, not brethren. Everything that we do has to be purposeful to the point of building faith from the Word of God and drawing other people to know God. And we have such a limited amount of time to do that when we gather anyway. We can't ever distract or take away from time in the Word of God. And I hope that we will always have that as a critical priority. We need to get in the Word of God. We don't need other tools. We don't need other ways. It is about the study of God's Word. So when we come together for Bible studies, not only will we make sure that we are teaching from the Word of God, but applying 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to use our words to build other people up. 
The things that we're going to say are going to be helpful. They're going to teach. They're going to instruct. They're going to encourage. They're going to give consolation. They're going to do exactly what Paul says. We use that as an opportunity to do that. That our prayers that we offer before God do the very same thing. That they're not mindless prayers. And we are talking to our Heavenly Father and we are engaging the minds of everybody in the room. And the things that we are saying in the prayer are going to be thoughtful and they're going to be true and they're going to be useful to everybody here to engage our minds as we speak to our Father. That the songs that we sing will do the same thing, that engage our minds, engage our hearts so that we are saying these words to God, words that are true and words that build up our faith and encourage and give us consolation as Paul said, that the lessons that we have from the Scriptures are from the Scriptures, but they are truly from the Word of God. The Word of God is proclaimed and that they build up faith and teach us what God wants us to do. It should cause us to listen to the Apostle Paul here and go, how we gather together and what we do in our assemblies is vitally important to God, otherwise it's not worship. And we're in a time that says, well, you worship God however you want to worship and whatever sounds good. We've got an hour. What sounds good for us to do? I got an idea of what sounds good. Let's do the word of God. Let's read the word of God. Let's study the word of God. Let's pray the word of God. Let's sing the word of God and encourage one another while we do it. That's what Paul said to do. And anything else is a distraction from what God has told this church to do. And we must stand firm in that. We must build one another up and make it so that whenever somebody came into our assembly, the possibility of chapter 14 and verses 24 and 25 would happen. That they would come in and fall on their face, not because things are goofy and fun, but because the word of God is proclaimed and they declare that God is here and they worship him. Because that's all that matters. May we always stand for that very goal of God is everything and His Word will guide every aspect of not only our personal lives but also our times of assembly together. That that matters to God what we do together and how we do it. You pull your song books out, we'll sing invitation song. We invite you to come to the glorious Lord Jesus, that you will see our Lord as the wonderful Savior who has died for your sins, who comes to this earth and sacrifices all so that we could be reconciled to the Father, to have our sins taken away, so that we could have a relationship with God once again in the hope of eternal life. And we beg you to consider where you stand before God today. Have you turned away from your sins? Have you repented of those things and made a dedication and devotion now to God that you are going to serve Him? Follow Him with all your heart. No longer going the ways of the world. No longer listening to the passions of yourself, but desiring to obey the very Word of God. To confess Jesus as the Son of God, who you will follow and will be your master all the days of your life. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Have your sins taken away at that moment so you can walk with Him. You ready to come to Him? Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?